Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. It has been said time and time again, whether in my own political science courses by students reflecting on their personal relationships and politics, or by political pundits and commentators, that the nation today is more divided than ever before. After the dust settled on the 2020 election, we witnessed a violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Everyone watching around the world probably wondered if those citizens really represented American political culture. Are we, as American citizens, okay with political violence? How extreme are we in our political views and with our partisanship? I'm joined today by two guests who are in the process of publishing their book, Radical American Partisanship, Mapping Violent Hostility, Its Causes, and the Consequences for Democracy with the University of Chicago Press. Lily Mason is an associate research professor in the SNF Agora Institute and the Department of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. She is the author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity from the University of Chicago Press. She received her PhD in political psychology from Stony Brook University and her BA in politics from Princeton University. Her research on partisan identity, partisan bias, social sorting and American social polarization has been published in journals such as the American Political Science Review, American Journal of Political Science, Public Opinion Quarterly and Political Behavior and featured in media outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN and NPR. Nathan Calmo is an associate professor of political communication at Louisiana State University with joint appointments in the Manship School of Mass Communication and the Department of Political Science. His work focuses on partisanship and ideology in the public, political communication effects, and contentious mass political behavior, including two books on these topics, Neither Liberal Nor Conservative, Ideological Innocence in the American Public, and With Ballots and Bullets, Partisanship and Violence in the American Civil War. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Atlantic, and other popular outlets. Thank you both for joining me to discuss your work today. And I am so excited to see that this book is coming out, hopefully in 2022. And Lily, I want to begin with you. And I want to hear a little bit about how you both began working together on this book project. How, how did this come about? Yeah, well, we actually, uh, we arranged to have our first meeting at the annual conference of the International Society of Political Psychology in 2016, uh, which was actually taking place in Edinburgh in Scotland. We wanted to meet each other because uh, my book, uh, neither of our solo author books had come out yet. And, and my book was on, you know, sort of why Democrats and Republicans hate each other. And, and his book was about partisanship during the Civil War. And so as we were talking, we started thinking, well, you know, I'm measuring, you know, this type of animosity in, in modern day politics. What Nathan's research suggests is actually that it could be way worse than the things that I'm measuring in my book, which is really kind of limited to, you know, would you be upset if your child married someone from the other party? Uh, it's those types of kind of social questions. And, and so we kind of decided that it would be really good for us to actually measure how extreme partisanship could be today. Like, how is it possible that, you know, our partisan animosity goes as far as what people might have been thinking in the context of the Civil War? No one was measuring that. So we decided to start a research project 
together and it just sort of escalated. <laughs> um, you know, we started measuring these things and then we, you know, ran another study to try to refine the measure and ended up doing multiple surveys over, you know, between 2017 and 2021, uh, over a dozen national surveys, trying to just get a handle on how far does partisanship go and, and try to think of kind of the most extreme measures that we could possibly think of that no one had really asked Americans before. So Nathan, I, w- I want to bring you into this conversation with the book that you have about the Civil War. So are there other times in American history that we can point to where we were either as divided as perhaps we are now or even more divided? Than, than we are now. Yeah, we have a, a long history of, of political divisions, including violent political divisions. If we want to find uh, precedents for this, there's, there's numerous examples. We could go back to the founding era with the American Revolution, when a large portion of uh, American colonists were loyal to the British crown and others were seeking independence. And there was conflict between the, the colonists at, at that time. You can see the Civil War as probably the biggest example of a, a, a violent precedent where you have a, a country that's divided over slavery, um, but that slavery is also dividing the parties and that leads to this massive split uh, after the 1860 presidential election when white Southerners refused to, ele- to accept Abraham Lincoln's election. Three quarters of a million Americans die as a result. You've got the violence that occurs after the Civil War with uh, Reconstruction and then the Jim Crow era, where essentially you have multiple decades of uh, white supremacists trying and eventually succeeding in overthrowing the first attempt at multiracial democracy in the United States, with thousands of people dying in in that process as well. So there's lots of precedent for not just a, a conflict between parties or between different parts of society, but fusions of those conflicts of social conflicts onto political conflicts in ways that have led to not just the levels of conflict that we see today, including violence, but on much broader scale. So the scary answer is that things can actually get quite a lot worse than we have already seen. The title of your book is also Radical Partisanship. What is a good definition of radical partisanship? Well, for our purposes, political violence is a radical shift away from conventional democratic politics. And so we consider support for partisan violence to be a kind of radical partisanship. And we also are assessing other kinds of extreme partisan attitudes uh, including what we call, uh, actually what psychologists call moral disengagement. And we're looking at that through a partisan lens. These are the kinds of rationales that people come up with that make them feel uh, they're justified in hurting people, that they can still think of themselves as good people, uh, even as they're physically hurting or killing other people, um, including vilification and dehumanization. So there's that aspect that is certainly radical partisanship. Um, we also call this because not only does it fit that definition, but it really is a succinct way of serving as, a, I think, a wake-up call to uh, people generally, as well as to, to the scholars who study what we study, to contemplate the scale of uh, this growing threat in our national politics. And I'll also say we analyze a history of political violence and anti-democratic threats to our country, um, some of which I just mentioned, that's especially a focus around racial and religious hostility over time. And that broader narrative of how those social conflicts get mapped onto political conflicts and can serve to erode and even dismantle democracy, as well as sometimes advance democracy, is part of that broader story of partisan radicalism. So Lily, what kind of data did you use to measure these items? You were mentioning that a few moments ago. 
the, you know, this was one of the biggest puzzles that we confronted as we tried to start this project was what kind of questions would you even ask Americans, right? How extreme could it even be? And I think one of our, you know, one of our expectations was that we wouldn't find a lot of people approving of overt violence, but we wanted to include questions like that because we thought, okay, well, that's maybe, you know, as, as extreme as it can get and we won't find a lot of support for that. And that's part of the reason we also included this concept of moral disengagement, where it's sort of the precursor, usual precursor to that, to mass violence. Um, but it includes things that are sort of easier to agree with. So things like, you know, the uh, people in the other party are a threat to the United States and its people or members of the other party don't deserve to be treated like humans and then uh, or they're downright evil. And then in the in the what we think of as the category of more like overt support for violence, we ask people whether it's acceptable uh, for other Americans to harass political leaders um, from the other party, threatened political leaders in the other party, whether it's okay to harass and threaten regular members of the other party uh, online in a way that makes them feel frightened. And then just, is it acceptable to use violence to achieve political goals? And then finally, we just wanted to kind of make it a little easier to answer that question and say, well, what if your party loses in the next presidential election? Then would you, do you think it would be acceptable to use violence um, to advance your political goals. And the, you know, overall, we did, we ended up finding more support for violence than we, than we sort of expected with, you know, between 10 and 20% of, of American partisans at different points in time, um, accepting violence uh, or agreeing that it's at least a little bit justified. Uh, but, you know, up to 60% of, of American partisans saying that, you know, the uh, people in the other party are evil and a threat to the United States. So, you know, we have kind of a wide range of, of results and attitudes. And, this, and these, these data come from, you know, uh, nationally, as, as nationally representative as possible, but nationally representative surveys, most of which were conducted by YouGov, which is considered sort of the gold standard in, in you know, survey, survey research for political science, at least. And, uh, and so this was, you know, we have these very, you know, repeated measures across time. We started out with dozens of items. We narrowed it down to sort of these, these four or, you know, three, seven items overall that we found over time were consistently good predictors or, can, or people were, were answering these, these, these questions consistently across time. Um, so that, that became our final scale. And, and because we were able to run so many surveys, we were, we were really able to refine the measure down to you know, a, a small enough number that other people could use it, for instance, to do their own, to do their own research and make their own assessments. What year did you begin these surveys? We started in 2017 um, and then we repeated um, during election season 2017, and then we repeated again in 2018. By 2019, we got a, a large grant and, and did a panel study, which is re-interviewing the same people three times. And then uh, we just continued to collect after that. So we did another one in 2020. And then finally in 2021, we did a, we, after, after the events of January 6th, we thought it would be irresponsible not to collect more data after that. So we have data from February of 2021 that are in the book. And we've actually collected more data in June of this of this year uh, that did not make it into the book, but that help us to to see, you know, sort of these, these ongoing trends. Now, before you set off on this data gathering journey, was anyone looking at a question similar to this, um, let's say from 2010 or 2000, where we could perhaps see a growth or a decline in these attitudes? Yeah, that was a real challenge um, because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of of survey surveys that actually ask these types of questions. Um, you know, our 
our concept of, of American partisanship was, was developed during the 1960s in a time when, you know, Eisenhower was president or, you know, the research was done when Eisenhower was president. So we just didn't think of partisanship as a, as a serious, uh, you know, a, a thing that could, could uh, encourage extremism. It was considered relatively benign. And so that, that was how the tradition of measuring this started. And we've just kept doing it that way. So it's pretty rare for political scientists to use these types of items. There has been, you know, there was one question in 1997 that, that Pew asked sort of related, but not exactly the same, and actually finding relatively similar levels that we've been finding in recent years. Uh, there's some, you know, some sort of like, is it okay to rebel against the government type questions from, from some research in the 1960s. But again, it's not the same exact, you know, idea and wording, and it's coming from a very different political context. It was really important to us to, keep, to be collecting data throughout really the Trump presidency, because we wanted to see if it changed at all during that period of time because we knew we couldn't go back in time because we already, you know, we already knew that we had this limitation. And so what we wanted to see was at the very least, can we see changes across the Trump presidency re reactions to events, right? When, when certain things happen, do we see a bump in these attitudes? And in fact, we did see, you know, some, some reactivity to, to political events that were happening. And we were also able to run experiments to see, you know, were, are there any interventions that can change these attitudes? And we did find that, you know, for instance, political leadership matters, and, and there, are, there are things that can affect them. So we can see change that either we've created through an intervention, or we also saw sort of gradual trends across the entire Trump presidency. So I want to come back to what you just said in a few moments about things that could affect these attitudes. For those who are just now joining the program, hi, um, my name is Heather Evans, and I'm the host of Red White and Confused. And today I've been chatting with Lily Mason, who is an associate research professor in the SNF Agora Institute and the Department of Political Science at John Hopkins University, and Nathan Calmo, who is an associate professor of political communication at Louisiana State University with joint appointments in the Manship School of Mass Communication and the Department of Political Science. We've been chatting about their upcoming book, Radical American Partisanship, Mapping Violent Hostility, Its Causes, and the Consequences for Democracy, which is coming out next year with the University of Chicago Press. Um, and our conversation has been really interesting so far, thinking about these attitudes that the mass public holds and whether those attitudes have shifted over time. So Nathan, I want to turn back to you for a moment. What is the research saying right now that you guys have been doing about these attitudes that Americans have after the Trump presidency? Because I know that you have some data that you've collected now that he is no longer in office and Biden is president. Do we see an increase in these attitudes or a decrease in these attitudes? The short answer is that it's actually, uh, as of this last summer, was higher than at any previous time that we had recorded since 2017. Uh, when we first started, support for violence was around 8%. Um, we saw a notable increase in 2018 uh, and, and then held pretty steady around 12% or so into early 2020. We saw it jump up to about 16% after the election and in February. And then in June, it was at 25%. We've generally found that there was little difference between Republicans and Democrats during 2017 through early 2020. Since the fall of 2020 through our most recent collection in June, Republicans have had higher levels uh, than, than Democrats. So that, that aspect of the trend is new. 
We see this on other measures too, including the threats against leaders and citizens and support for violence if your own party loses the next presidential election. And those increases in those trends uh, are consistent in the those moral disengagement items that we mentioned before too, the um, feeling that the other party is a threat to the country, that the, they're evil, they're not just wrong, but they're evil and that they're, they're less than human. Uh, one really important note for us is, is that most people who do endorse violence are not thinking about lethal violence. So in a couple different instances, we've actually asked people, you just told us that you think violence is at least a little bit justified by your party. What do you have in mind? And we gave them uh, first a, an open opportunity to give their responses. And then uh, based on the responses from one study, uh, we're able to, to develop a set of, of essentially check, check boxes for people to, to say, which among these things do you have in mind, you know, all inclusive? And uh, you know, 10 or 15% of people are, are thinking lethal violence of, of mass killing or at least uh, assassination or those kinds of things. A bunch of other people are thinking uh, fistfights and, and brawls and those kinds of things. Others have things like uh, property damage in mind or other kinds of destructive acts. And then there are some people who actually back away uh, when we ask them this follow-up and they say, you know what, uh, none of these things are really what I meant. Um, we can't know for sure if that's because they're spooked that we're probing the question, uh, but it suggests that uh, I think one of the re reassuring things, if there is a silver lining here, is that the, the broad endorsement of violence by ostensibly millions of people is still a, a tiny minority of, of all partisans. And when you really push people on what they have in mind, a lot of those people who say they support violence aren't thinking about the most extreme instances of violence. Um, so that's uh, an important uh, interpretive uh, lens to, to bring to these numbers. Are there things that are correlated with those who are more pro-political violence? Yeah. So one of the things that we wanted to do after we established uh, the, the levels and, and sort of the, the basic measurement of, of these questions and started to figure out what they respond to in terms of, of events and other things, we wanted to figure out who are the people that, that hold these attitudes. And the, the most consistent predictors that we found were first people who behave and think aggressively in everyday interpersonal life are more inclined to endorse these questions, not just the violence questions, but also the moral disengagement questions. So people who, for instance, tend to be very argumentative, uh, who get into physical altercations, you know, uh, at, at the bar or, or maybe with family members, uh, people who get angry easily and have really hostile attitudes in general towards other people, those kinds of people are much more inclined to endorse partisan violence and, um, and moral disengagement. Another factor, not so surprising, is that people who feel closely identified with their own party are more likely to endorse this. These are people who, uh, who feel like their own identity is wrapped up in the identity of, of the party, and those kinds of people are better able, more motivated to endorse these kinds of uh, extreme forms of, of partisanship. Those are the two biggest things within the book that we found, and we actually tested a, a new thing in, in June at the, at the encouragement of a political psychologist friend of ours. And it, it was testing something called social dominance orientation. It sounds kind of jargony. 
it's basically the idea that it's a belief that that some groups just deserve to be on top and to to get all the good things and others are rightly subordinated. Um, obviously that can map onto lots, lots of different groups by uh, race and religion and other things, but these questions are, are quite general. And we found to our surprise actually that this was uh, basically equal or in some cases stronger in, in predicting the kinds of people who were more likely to endorse partisan violence and these other extreme attitudes equal basically to this aggressive personality trait. And so it's by far the strongest political predictor uh, of uh, who is likely to support this. One other aspect that's really interesting is it, that's related. It's how racial attitudes and attitudes towards uh, women, uh, sexist attitudes, um, uh, align with partisanship and the party reputations. And uh, basically what we found is that in terms of partisan moral disengagement, Republicans who were more likely to endorse uh, what we call racial resentment, essentially denying that there are systemic uh, uh, racial disparities that, that harm Black Americans uh, relative to white, uh, Republicans who endorsed those views were substantially more likely to uh, endorse partisan moral disengagement, that is, seeing Democrats as threats, as evil, as even less than human. On the other side, uh, Democrats were more likely to endorse uh, partisan moral disengagement when they had the opposite attitudes, when they uh, recognized the, the existence of systemic prejudice uh, in institutions against Black people in this country. And we found a similar kind of pattern with sexism. Republicans that held more sexist attitudes towards women were more likely to endorse moral disengagement the opposite for Democrats, that those who were at least sexist on these measures were more likely to endorse partisan moral disengagement against Republicans. So essentially, just like with the historical narrative, the alignment of social groups and attitudes towards those social groups in, in terms of uh, identities and orientations is really important in giving not just uh, motivations to uh, ordinary partisan behavior, but also motivating these really uh, extreme and intense forms of partisanship that have, have, through our history, driven some really extreme conflict. That's really fascinating. And Lily, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about these external things or these events that might drive these attitudes. Yeah, there are, so there's the reactions to um, political events that are sort of very polarizing political events. So we saw spikes in approval of these of the of, of violence and, and, and of moral disengagement around the the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Um, the very, very clear spike and in both in all in all of these sort of attitudes, these extreme attitudes. So that clearly was a rad, sort of a radicalizing event. We've also, and then of course we saw another spike right after the 2020 election, which also coincided with Donald Trump's second impeachment and right after the January 6th insurrection. So we can't pull those things apart, but we do know that it was a time that was very um, politically polarized. The, the other thing that we found is that the, these the sort of pro-violent attitudes um, are unfortunately responsive to violent events. So we happened to have a survey in the field during, uh, in 2018, before, during, and after there was one week when there was, uh, at the same time, the, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, and there was um, the, the man who was sending pipe bombs to prominent Democratic and, and, and mainstream media um, 
figures. So that all happened during one week. And what we saw was right after that week, approval of violence among both Democrats and Republicans spiked. So people responded to violence by approving more of violence. The good news is that those added that was a very brief, a brief period, and that that effect went away pretty quickly. But there's, you know, clearly there can there can be a spike in approval of violence after people experience or see examples of violence. One could imagine, you know, a potential terrible scenario where there's sort of this cascade of, you know, violent event, more approval, another violent event, more approval. So that's, you know, one of the dangers that we should keep in mind that the, the violence is not, a, you know, seeing violence is not a pacifying thing for people. And, and, and also, you know, sort of just being on partisan media tends to increase, um, you know, people's approval of either moral disengagement or political violence. Um, you know, people who are living in a consistent media diet of things that are, you know, generally more, um, you know, favoring of their party, the, those, you know, those influences tend to increase this level of, of approval of these types of attitudes. Um, but that's also partially just because we're looking at, you know, those types of people tend to be really strong partisans. They tend to be really strongly identified with their party. And that, and that partisanship is, again, you know, one of the strongest, one of the most consistent predictors that we found. So I want to close with this question. Uh, you know, as, as we've been talking today, I've been thinking about how troubling it is, in my opinion, this trend, this upward trend in terms of approval for political violence since January since January 6th. So what can we do to kind of decrease that or reverse that or pause that? Are there things that we can do as citizens to, to stop this? So uh, there's a couple of factors that are, are especially important. I want to mention leadership, but, but you really focused on a sense that many of us feel uh, unable to to do anything like we're stuck in this situation and we don't have agency, uh, that's definitely not the the message that we want to uh, convey. Social influence, the the extent to which just our our conversations that we have with the other people in our lives is consistently the most powerful influence on how people are thinking and acting in politics. So for all of the, for instance, billions of dollars that are spent on political advertising and, and hitting people with media messages, knock, you know, all the volunteers and paid people knocking on doors to try to convince people to act different ways in politics, the consistently the most effective things that change how people are thinking and acting in politics are the the people that we're close to who we talk to about politics. So our families, our friends, our coworkers, the those everyday kinds of conversations, even when they are on difficult topics that sometimes people try to avoid uh, because they're they're tough conversations to have. But we ha- we do have the power to reinforce the norms of democracy that you know all men are created equal, that that violence is not appropriate in uh, a system of of uh, democratic politics in a democracy um, and that we need to really uh, work together that even when we see, you know, the, the wins for the other party's team or the wins for our own team, that there are some bigger things at stake in terms of the, the sustainability, not just of our system of our government, but our society as a, as a relatively peaceful place for us to try to coexist and to, to make the country a better place. So uh, among all the things, we really do have individual agency to influence the people around us to 
um, to not be supportive of, of violence in, in politics, to recognize the importance that everyone should be able to um, cast a, a ballot in a fair election and to have their rights equally upheld uh, under the law that what they look like or the, the God that they worship is not going to affect how they're going to be treated by police or by the federal government or by their state government. Uh, reinforcing those norms of democracy, including rejecting aspects of radical partisanship, is something that we all have the, the, the power to, to do that requires us to, to sometimes take some difficult steps to, to engage people on things that are hard to talk about. But it's especially important when you hear people in your lives expressing these kinds of really extreme attitudes. Well, thank you both for being a guest on the program today, and thank you all for listening. If you missed any piece of our broadcast, you can listen to this program again wherever you listen to podcasts like Spotify. Just search for Red, White, and Confused. See you next time.